I'm Blake Howard. This is the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. A Michael Mann film-inspired podcast tackling everything about the 1992 film The Last of the Mohicans through a very specific lens. It's finale. And oh boy, is it an all-timer of a finale. Soaring score from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones's adaptation of The Gale. Unbelievable performances by Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Russell Means, Eric Schwieg, Jody May, Steve Waddington. Lensed so stunningly and staggeringly by the legendary Dante Spinotti and directed by Michael Mann. We have a war party of cinema's sharpest minds along for the ride, all culminating with the mountainous director himself, Mr. Mann. Welcome to the show. So, ladies and gentlemen, there's a few key ingredients to the one heat minute family, um, and and the, I, I've hopefully assembled all of those uh, for this mini series dedicated to Last of the Mohicans. One of my favorite people, one of the most, uh, one of the people who gives some of the best Twitter and Facebook updates about seeing movies out there. One of my favorite working film critics who writes for North Shore Movies, writes on his own personal blog, Spice Personality. Um, he's he's just one of my faves. He's absolutely one of my faves. And uh, he's a legend. He's the Bostonian critic, Sean Byrne. Sean, thank you so much for coming back to a Michael Mann movie again. I'll come back anytime you introduce me. I, I would like you to. In, can you introduce me on my Tinder dates? Can we work that out? I'm just sorry. Kind of bring you in sorry, for, for I the just first need, meeting. I don't know what time it is in Australia, but if you could just talk to this guy on Skype for just a minute. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you. You just. No, I'm so glad to be here. After all the times you told me you would never do another <laughs> podcast about Michael Mann film, I think that was about. What, two months ago, <laughs> uh, it, it it was and literally and and what I will tell you, it's like tell everyone. It only occurred to me because I was blessed with the with the you know with great power with great access to Michael Mann to talk about another Michael Mann movie. Comes the responsibility of one hundred and thirty hours versus one hour. It's a it's the ratio just was off, Sean. It was off. I had to, rec- I had to rectify it. So here I am. I'm like Neil McCauley. I'm going to kill Wayne Grow. I don't care. I, yeah, no. I was thinking of the the Godfather Three. Like just when you think you're out, right? pull me back. <laughs> pull in. you back. In. Uh, so here I am. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm um uh, I'm so glad to be talking to you about this movie because we haven't really talked about like in the, all of them. In all of the man conversations you and I have had, we've stuck a lot to his crime movies and his crime oeuvre, like in his contemporary films, because they, you know, white white gun handles and things like that. <laughs> tend to, you know, they, these great blustery cop characters and crook characters, um, they sort of lend to um, our personalities so much. But Mohicans as well is such, for me, is such a massive point of difference. Although it's very similar thematically when you sort of dig under the hood 
Um, it's so different. It's so big. It's so sweeping. And it has this really, you know, uh, uh, you know, some people think about the ending of Heat sometimes as having to, you know, the epic had to earn the big soaring ending. Um, and Mohicans does that in a shorter runtime in a period historical epic and then has this big sweeping mu- pure music sonic thing, cinema um, and expressions. Um, and, and it has, and I just, it's just so wonderful. It's just like a great, such a exceptionally well-made movie. Um, and so many great characters and just, yeah, I, I couldn't, I, I almost couldn't resist. So here I am. Well, it seems like such an outlier. And then you think about it for five minutes and you're like, Oh, this is all of his things. It's just, you know. <laughs> it's just and it's, differently. It's the classic Michael Mann thing where it's absolutely meticulous period detail. You know, every gun is perfect <laughs> and it's all, it's, also realistic in the service of this soaringly romantic kind of nonsense. You know? <laughs> yeah, then you need. I mean, I don't mean nonsense is a bad thing. It's just he has this. The details ballast out this crazy romantic viewpoint he has of the world. Yeah, and he like when you're making the greatest American hero story, he needed him to have this, you know, great American heroine. This blouse never misses a shot. No. The whole no. Movie. No, he loves it. He lo- Dead a thousand miles away, you can pick off uh, what's the bird flying. That's just yeah, that's tremendous. That's the uh, that's the great unforgiven quote. Um, but yeah, very similar, right? He's he's hitting everything, and this is the other thing. And I know you would love this story. Michael Mann tells you know he's talking through the script with Daniel Day Lewis, and you know obviously outlining the action that's happening, and he's like, okay, so you know Hawkeye, he can run. And, and quick load a powder weapon, ready to fire it again. And, of course, Daniel Day-Lewis, because he's a normal human, is like, Michael, is this like an embellishment? You know, you know we're talking about an authentic movie. You know, maybe we want to get rid of the guy who can run and load a weapon. Like, maybe have him stop, load it quickly, get up. And Michael Mann's like, no, I've found a weapons expert who's going to show you that it can be done. And so then films a guy... <laughs> running along so that he can screen that for Daniel Day-Lewis and go, see, now I want you to do that. Like, if this guy can do it, you, the son of a poet from <laughs> the other side of the world, you're going to figure that out, and that's how we're going to do this. Oh, and I'm sure by then Daniel Day-Lewis was sleeping out under the trees at night, you know. <laughs> I know someone, they shot the Crucible near Boston, and I know someone who worked on the construction crew when they were building all the sets. And then they had to come in and tell the guys, they're like, okay, Daniel Day-Lewis is going to come in and he's going to build John Proctor's house. And he's going to be in costume and you have to call him John. Now imagine like my friend Billy and all these construction guys are like, what the fuck is this weirdo doing? (laughs) So I said, well, how was he? And they're like, that was really cool. You know, I mean, we we like John. (laughs) He had the funny outfit on, but you know, he was a hard worker. (laughs) But you know, it's... It's sad to me that he always says that he's not good enough of an actor to do it otherwise. Like, he can't imagine these things. He has to live them. But, I mean, I think he can fake it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's, it's, but it's also like there was a moment where he went from seemingly not putting himself through that kind of toil. And it's like almost like post-Mohicans, he doesn't stop. Like, it's unrelenting. It's like now I have to live it. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to live in the woods. I'm going to be running around. And like, there's just funny, like 
it's it's it would be the greatest out of context footage of all time of just Daniel Day Lewis in full garb while like everyone's standing around while setup's happening, just running. He's like running around the camp, <laughs> carrying <laughs> rifles, running around. It's just it's it's like it's an insane level of commitment. But then when he does it and he's really deliberate at it and he's really pulling it off, you're like, okay. Like I get it. Well yeah, because we shouldn't buy that character. He's ridiculous. Oh, he's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. When he jumps off the waterfall. <laughs> no. We should be we should not have allowed that to be. And like Russell means, like running up hills, like no. <laughs> this shouldn't actually be, be in existence, but it just it is unbelievably perfect. No, it all it's funny because I didn't know. I remember going to see it and um I didn't know what kind of movie it was going to be. I was like, oh, it's this literary adaptation with Daniel Day-Lewis and, you know, it's Michael Mann, who, again, I wasn't quite obsessed with yet. And it was like a half hour, and I was like, oh, this is an action movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis didn't do action movies. He was the guy from A Room with a View in my left foot. <laughs> I didn't expect him to be running around shooting everyone in the face. <laughs> and tomahawking people to death. But I'm in. Yeah, I still, I'm in. it was like a book I never read that they talked about in school, which I've still never read the book. I don't know if you yeah. have, but I've, no. I've not heard good things. No, no. It's, um, <laughs> there's, there's some really great literary criticism about Fenimore Cooper's book. But it was seminal, right? Like it was one of those things that's like canonical and then people examined it after a few years and like, this is garbage. This is out of garbage. <laughs> and well, it's it, just a great name. Yeah, it's a great name. Let's keep the title. The title is banging. That's there's nothing to deny that. And so you you, so you see this movie pre your obsession. This is the first Michael Mann movie that I ever remember seeing, and I didn't know that it was a Michael Mann movie until much later. But I just remember that I saw Mohicans well before I saw any of other other things. And then it's like this weird, strange association where you're like, "Holy crap! Like he made this movie? Like how did this? How 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 did he want to do this? Um, and and for something that." For a guy who's so about cutting-edge contemporary crime thrillers that are sort of somewhat ahead of the curve in like what they're trying to do narratively or digitally or you know aesthetically and, and and whatnot, he kind of goes so hard at this like making like the action movie Barry Lyndon, and then he just never does it again. <laughs> and and it's, it's 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 what's strange to me, and you know talking to Bilga Abiri about it too is like, and I wonder like. He would never, in the modern context, get away with making one movie like this where they didn't go, you're this guy now. We want historical period epics, but he just immediately, off a mountain of success, like top 20 grossing movie of the year, hugely popular, Oscar winning, nah, I'm going to do a crime movie. (laughs) And they just give him the money to do that. Like, it seems really, you know, counterintuitive to 2019 movie making. Like, no, you go and make more of those things that you're good at making. It is funny though, because it does fit into so many, it fits into his formula even story-wise, because you have that big scene in the middle of the movie where he kills off the majority of the supporting cast. Yes, yes. It's always like, you know, we're halfway through, it's collateral, we've talked about a black hat, I was like, okay, there's too many people in this movie, I have to wipe the slate clean. (laughs) And it's always like with Heat, it's a much bigger action movie, the action sequence than the one that he ends with. Like, yeah, you know, he sort of gets the the grandiose thing out of the way in the middle, and they can move on to a more personal. Because you know, as we're talking about the last twelve minutes, is just this intense slow motion. Oh, I don't. When did uh, she fall in love with that girl? Fall in love with his brother? <laughs> I yeah, still get confused by that. <laughs> look, uh, uh, this is what this is what I've had to remember. Look, just watching that focus in that last minute. I think the bit of connection. It's sort of chase. They're looking at each other, but the big one is when Alice. 
And this is what I've forgotten when, when I've had to go back and watch it again as part of this show many times. It's like you forget that there's this real in, extreme tender moment where Alice almost like Alice's proclivity for just like ending it because life is too hard is sort of actually an impulse that she nearly exercises in the waterfall. Right, she almost jumps off there, and then they go into slow motion to the rescue. And I'm like, "Oh, are they banging now? Yeah. <laughs> are they banging now?" That's a question for Michael Mann. But yeah, you can ask him. Yeah, you can tell. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that that's that moment, right? Because in the whole movie, and this is what I, I said, you know, admitted about myself is, you know, Alice, maybe a month before, or let's say eight weeks before, is tottering around a cobblestone courtyard, fending off advances from British officers, like fluttering a fan, and then is thrust into the French and Indian War and trudging through the frontier, which is unrelenting. She's watching people get massacred left and right. She's like walking PTSD. And this that guy ate her dad's heart. Yeah. The guy ate her... Yeah, fortunately she didn't <laughs> see that, right? Like a guy's eating her dad's heart. Her sister just said her dad's dead. Um, and it's like it's sort of unimaginable that she would even be, you know, focused to do anything. So I, I feel bad for Alice. And in that moment when there's that tenderness, you're like, oh, there's something. Maybe right. he can be her connection. But yeah, so you get to this final minute, like this final 10 minutes. And I love what you started to say. It's like this big slow motion. It doesn't, when you say it, it's like, oh, this, there is a lot of slow motion, but it's just this, how it's orchestrated is so wonderful. So the 12 minutes kicks off, Major Duncan Hayward, Steve Waddington, doing some awesome translating and, you know, uh, 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 what do you call it? Misdirection translating to, to be self Oh, and it's the great flip because it's the guy you hate the whole time and then he gets to be valiant and give his life for you. You're like, oh, I just started to like this guy. Yeah, he's going to die horrible death. Uh, and, and the most <laughs> horrible. I actually, yeah. how many deaths are as bad as that death in movies? <laughs> Not many. It's a rough one. And I mean, this guy's been snidely whiplash the whole fucking movie. He's been Billy Zane in Titanic the whole time. <laughs> Billy, instead of <laughs> floating off with the women and children, he gets a soaring moment of heroism. <laughs> now, even like Daniel Day-Lewis is looking at him like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's so awful. He, he gets that mercy kill shot. You know, thankfully, he's actually, his aim is true. Um, yeah. And then they go into this, this, this... It'd be funny if that was the one shot he missed. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Sorry, I got your shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's so awful. Um, so th- then this moment happens. Now, I want to ask you because, you know, you're, you're a crazy cinephile and you've watched this. Like, Daniel Day-Lewis is the star of this movie. We get to this moment. Uncas shares this exchange with his dad. You know, you know, Cora and Hawkeye have been the whole story up until this point. And then it, like, flips. How does this movie maintain like our laser focus and insane, I don't know, like dedication to it. How does it do that so well? Like, what do you think about like how it can flip and go, no, the movie is now about Uncas and Alice and essentially the hero of the movie then pivots to Chingachikuk, like an activist, Russell Means, playing this badass dad character who's so laconic, doesn't get really to say too many words in the entire film. And then Daniel Day-Lewis... Well, even in 1992, they couldn't have the white guy be the last of the Mohicans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, it feels like in some 1992 movies, they probably could have. They yeah, no, I saw The Last Samurai. That was one too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so you get this movie and it's like, no, we're going to... What we're actually really telling is this 
kind of tragic story yeah. about this father and son who've adopted this guy, and they're actually the guys that are in charge of this. Well, they're going to lure you in with watching two of the best people in the world, Hump and Period Clothing, <laughs> the best-looking people ever. Because, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I love West Studio and Russell Means, but if you'd had them on the poster... <laughs> No, it's not as attractive as uh, Madeline Stowe. That's for sure. That's for sure. Um, oh my God, nineteen nineties Madeline Stowe. Holy shit! <laughs> one of the most it's beautiful. Good. One of the most beautiful women to ever walk the face of the earth. She's a like, there was that run of like Revenge and Stakeout. And, you know, I even sat through Blink like three times just because she was in it. Oh, Blink! God, that's going to have to go in the description. Go and find that. That's a where Madeline Stowe plays a blind person. Um. The, the the massive one for me uh, for for these two for these two characters is it, something you just touched on is there are still people who believe that their exchange is only a kiss Sean <laughs> and I think it's one of the greatest standing, I don't know I think where it, you find these people I, I think this is one of the greatest standing shags <laughs> in almost yeah. movie history it's pretty clear what's going on maybe they watched it on an airplane or something <laughs> high altitude you got altitude sickness you, you've only got just because something's out of frame doesn't mean it's not happening <laughs> so where does where does Mohicans rank for you in Michael now being a Michael Mann obsessive that you are where does Mohicans where does Mohicans rank and, and how often do you revisit it I guess it's weird I never think to I never think of it as part of the, all the other films are so interconnected with the, you know, contemporary crime thing. I never think of it. And then like, when you asked me about this, I watched it again. I was like, Oh yeah, this is great. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, I really don't think of it as often as part of the whole body of work. And, but yeah, it is funny how like direct it is too. And he's just like looking at her and she's like, what are you looking at? And he's like, I'm looking at you. <laughs> you, you and and I, I hold on her for that minute. <laughs> You, you, and, you and I are never going to be as cool as Daniel Day-Lewis in that moment where he's like, where he's like, um, I'm looking at you, miss. Like, to yeah. have the balls. Can you imagine, like, if I tried that in a bar, I would get maced. <laughs> Even if I had you introducing me to her. <laughs> Look, I'm looking at you, miss, because I've got a friend here on Skype who wants to introduce He's going to tell you how clever I am. <laughs> So back to our end of the movie, we see them running up here. Uh, like, take me through your impressions of this scene, like just how it's put together. Because I think that you've got well, a great... It's kind of great. It feels like this ascension, like almost like spiritual or something when that music kicks in, the way the redundancy of the, the, uh, the Irish, which all of a sudden is, the Indians are all Irish now, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it works. I'm not, I'm not knocking it. It's just a, you know, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have guessed that was coming. But yeah, it sort of floats, and it's strange the way they're just the way they're shot in general in the movie. The people are so small. With, yes. Um, the, like in relation to the landscape, there's always just even the roots on the ground and things. Like it's just this massive world around them, and they're just these tiny little people. Yeah, and it's, and and that's a you know we saw it in Heat with Alex Colville's painting. You know that. Um, famous painting that was inspired inspired the Neil Macaulay gun on the table and Thomas Cole is 18th century actually impressions of the last of the Mohicans the novel of like these gigantuan landscapes and these tiny people is man just kind of going I'm gonna I'm gonna take that aesthetic drive but it's like those I think it's also the contrast right because you you talk about those amazing close-ups and 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 slow-mos 
you get these huge canvases of faces like you and I now talking <laughs> on Skype. It's like huge canvas, huge face, like really high on faces and top, top of torso. And then conversely, it's this tiny little war party against this epic like cliff face. And then bodies down in a ravine that you can just barely make out like if you've got beautiful digital prints you know now and and or you know um, 4k blu-ray or blu-ray you can see it with such crispness but in in you know when you're watching it on crappy tv or even dvd you know it's hard to sort of make out all of the detail in some of those big oh yeah in college this was one of those vhs's we would always put on when we came home drunk yeah <laughs> But yeah, you couldn't really see her at the bottom of the ravine. There, no. the, way you kind of, the Blu-ray, you're really like, oh, that's your dress, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, and also, just the the one thing on Blu-ray that in and it is in this 12 minutes is the blood on Magua's hands dripping. <laughs> like you can see the blood on his hands dripping as he's gesturing toward towards Alice to come back toward him, and you're like, <laughs> you're like, this is dark. As much as it might feel tender, it's extremely dark. What a performance that guy that, that is. Wait, so I don't know why he didn't get every award watching that again. I mean, he's just uh, the stillness is so the matter of fact. And, you know, and he doesn't make a lot of bad points. <laughs> no, he was right. Margot was right is a T-shirt that's got to come out of this show. I'm going to have to get a couple of um, we're, we're We're seeing that more often. But, you know, you'll be pleased to know, and I'm using the opportunity again, I feel like I'm on repeat, but Wes Studi this year is being honoured by the Academy Awards with an honorary Oscar. And so it is so freaking cool that at least now some justice has been done for his Titanic career that we can say on Last of the Mohicans starring... Academy, multiple Academy Award winner Daniel Day-Lewis and Academy Award winner Wes Studi because this is, uh, this is his masterpiece. Because like I think, you know, we talk about it a lot with Heat and other, other big movies. It's like if you've got one phenomenal method actor who's usually the soaring cru- you know, crutch of the movie, they're just leaning on him to just like carry something that doesn't have a lot of content um, and, you know, give, give me something extra that, that isn't on the page. Wes Studi just dwarfs Daniel Day-Lewis at the end of this movie. Like how... <laughs> like, He's the biggest and best working actor today. Any role he touches, people are like, oh, shit, he's working again this year. I'm definitely <laughs> losing all the awards. But, but he, he gets dwarfed by Wes Studi at the end of this movie in so many profound ways. And it's just like, it, I, I'm, I'm always struck by that comparison when you can do it directly in a movie to see how people are working. And, you know, and I think for him, he's like, his apex is is right in this in this whole sequence is just oh yeah one of my favorite bits of nonverbal acting ever is him in the new world looking at the topiary animals oh. at the end and it's oh, just a blank expression on his face that says every you write a whole book <laughs> yes like, I see that character's whole life right then <laughs> yes yes and he's great in hostiles too excellent in hostiles yeah. and yeah that's two Bale movies yeah but again Bale who really excellent in the new world quite good in hostiles. You know, West Duty comes on screen and everyone's just like, oh, shit. <laughs> so, yeah. And, that, and that's a testament to Pacino, right? That Pacino can hold his own amongst a West Duty in the room, you know, like <laughs> even though he's shouting and things like that. But, you know, West Duty just crushing it, crushing it in every single movie. Um, where do you rank this in Day-Lewis performances? Do you like it? I would, oh, I mean, it, it's so much fun to watch. I mean, I don't think it's like... <laughs> 
in the name of the Father, that there will be blood or anything. But it's just, I mean, the physicality, it's a different kind of performance for him. I mean, this is is his only action movie, right? Yeah. Yeah, I I, I love thinking about this and then going to, like, he he did The Boxer. The Boxer is actually quite excellent. Really physical role. Really, really good movie. Um, But, yeah, I love thinking about this in the context of, um, what's, what's the character... From Phantom Thread called again. I, I, it's is it Reynolds, oh, Reynolds, Reynolds Woodcock. Woodcock? That's all right, Reynolds Woodcock. Um, and, and my funniest side of that is that Christopher Nolan's kids call him Reynolds Woodcock, which I think is the best joke, almost ever. It's so good. Um, but like, did yeah. you ever see the Ben Stiller sketch with the Daniel Day Lewis treadmill? Now you, this is a this is rarefied air. Walter Chaw and I have already spoken about this and I'd never seen it and I've since watched it maybe 150 times. <laughs> it is hilarious. It's great. It's perfect though. I mean, that poster is everywhere. You oh. could not see Daniel running. <laughs> and I just love the guys that get the job of dressing a treadmill with all of that leather and stupidity. <laughs> like, I just love that there's a guy, like probably like your mates, I imagine, like, hey, you guys are building this set and talk to John in the old time like i love just the practical guy going what we're gonna dress up a treadmill like just like i love i love the person who actually gets that job because it's so silly it was so long ago ben stiller was funny this was a different time (laughs) yeah he wasn't making earnest you know uh earnest tv you know crime drama right like uh i didn't even watch that the secret life of walter mitty was the last straw for me last straw <laughs> look i kind of was taken i was a bit taken with the skateboarding i was like wow downhill skateboarding that looks freaking exciting scary but exciting um i just hate those movies made by people who have never had jobs that tell you you have to quit your job and go live your dreams and it's like <laughs> your parents were famous tv stars <laughs> oh god We've gone to the highs of Ben Stiller to the lows. Of course you can go travel, you know. Your parents are Stiller and Mira. I worked uh, at a dry cleaners in high school. <laughs> I was a kitchen hand. I was a kitchen hand in high school in a function kitchen. And my hands never didn't smell like wet pumpkin. Um <laughs> Oh, there's something about your hands in a dirty dish sink all night and the smell just never comes off. It's just there forever after that. Um, way big digression. So, do you, why do you think Michael Mann never made another historical drama like this? For a guy who kind of did for us, you know, other, other than obviously Ali, you could, you know, broadly call it historical drama. Later on with Public yeah. Enemies is broadly a historical drama, but like obviously there's so much more contemporary... Um, there's so much more of a contemporary foundation with those movies that you don't have, you know, you might go to a different country, you might do go to a different neighborhood that stands in for an existing neighborhood that has now sort of been, you know, uh, updated uh, significantly. But why do, you, why do you think man never went back to historical like this? Well, I imagine it's a giant pain in the ass. Like, I mean, if you're a perfectionist yeah. the way he is, I mean, they filmed this in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, yeah. It was... Through the mountains and they had to like helicopter in and... Was before GPS, they're using a Loran to find their locations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, North, North North Carolina, right in the center of North Carolina. It was steamy. Um, you know, uh, Chris Tapley, who's been on the show, said that some of his friends uh, like worked like in costumes and stuff, wrangling things for Michael Mann at the time. 
Um, very, you know, crazy days. But I just, yeah, I'm just a bit baffled as to why he never this went This is back. where the famous story comes from, that he was screaming about the light and it was the sun. <laughs> to explain to him. He was like, get that goddamn light off! <laughs> yes, that is, that is correct. They'd been shooting all night. Dante, get that light off. <laughs> actually told in the documentary. If you guys, you know, this show actually came about because of a great release that's happening in Australia. Um, a, a combined by a, a company called Via Vision has done a combined director's definitive edition and theatrical edition of The Last of the Mohicans in Australia. In Australia, we have never had the director's definitive edition, so Michael Mann nerds like myself had to ship it in from America, make sure we had a regional Blu-ray player or DVD player at the time to check it out. And, you know, there's some wonderful... There's like a 40-odd minute documentary on there, really extensive, really cool, got lots of the great performers and actors and stuff in there, and and that is Dante Spinotti's... Um, like almost singular contribution. It talks to Bonnie Timmerman, then it talks to Madeline Stowe, Daniel Day-Lewis, Wes Studi, phenomenal people. Michael Mann himself many times, a couple of the other, um, the uh, uh, production supervisors there and uh, and advisors for different roles and things like that, weaponry, armory, etc. But yeah, Dante tells that great story. Dante, <laughs> turn the light up. Turn the light up. It's a similar story to Heat going into the tunnel. What's wrong with the lighting? It's the, tunnel, it's the tunnel light. Bless him. Bless him. And bless Dante's uh, accommodation, too. And and look, Sean... Yeah, hey, you know, everyone who works with him more than once, I'm always taken with that. Those it, are serious people. Yeah, like, he's, he's great. And, and, but um, I, I, if I could recommend anyone to listen to this show, you know, there are so many wonderful guests, but if you, if you do get a chance, you have to listen to the Dante Spinotti episode because Dante drops some bombs on that episode, <laughs> just about the production, about everything, about his involvement. Um, and also, you know, just about, you know, some people like working with really people who've got a vision. And I think Dante, that's like Dante down to a T. He loves really confident strong filmmakers who've got a really clear vision and I think that that makes it really easy for him to operate in his wheelhouse of like how I can create this and how you can accommodate and he really talks about his involvement in 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 Mohicans being like how to light less how to light really targeted just to get the right lighting on the characters faces but like to light less to make everything speedy so you can shoot but it's not take an agonizing amount of time to do a setup like we want to just use natural light where possible and other than the waterfall set which is a sound stage you know, everything's happening in North Carolina. Everything's happening in these giant places with natural light or firelight or whatever. Um, oh, yeah. Well, they don't cheat the interiors. That's just light coming in from outside. You yeah. Know? And you can't see the people in the back of the room. Yes. Like, oh, I think there's someone moving around there. <laughs> yes. Oh, and, and, and so beautifully, where's Studi emerging as Magua in that yeah. moment as well, right? Just sitting off in the back of the room. You can kind of barely see him and he just pops out and you're like, oh, God, there he is um, in that great moment. Oh, Sean, I miss talking to you about Michael. Mann. Oh, I know. It's so fun. It's so fun. Well, good thing you're never going to do another Michael Mann <laughs> Which one do you think I'm going to do, Sean? I don't know. We're going to turn you on Black Hat. That's oh, no. No. <laughs> Me and Bilga are going to sit you down. It's going to be like the Ludovico technique for Clockwork Orange. You're going to have your eyes clipped open. I would do it. Introduce you to the wonders of Black Hat. I, I tell you what, if I got a chance, and I haven't had a chance to get over there yet, I do, you know, a couple of people have asked 
you know, if I'd gone to LA recently to do like a heat tour or anything like that, guys, I desperately want to go. I'm trying to get myself over there. Um, the challenge is that I have two very young kids and an amazingly accommodating wife who allowed me <laughs> while they were growing, um, both inside her and outside of her as young children, um, uh, to do a two-year podcast about heat and to travel to LA just to see Los Angeles and do a heat tour isn't exactly going to fly with my lovely and accommodating <laughs> wife. So I, uh, well, most of those places are gone now. Anyway, yes, so yeah. restaurants closed. You know? Yeah. Um, None of these cities are, no. yeah, look at the taxi driver locations in New York. Now it's all like uh, Disney chain stores. drug stores, <laughs> chain drug stores, Disney stores, Dwayne Reed pharmacies. Oh, <laughs> uh, well look, it's with the passage of time. It's with slagging off Ben Stiller. It's, 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 it's with, uh, being harassed for telling everyone I was never going back and then going back. Um, Sean Burns, you're amazing. Thank you, mate. Uh, for pleasure. Doing this. Thank, thank, you. thank you for doing this again. And I will promise you one thing. Sean will be on my other podcast, The Take, which is a weekly podcast talking about all the big topics. Um, and that will be the next time we talk, not necessarily a Michael Mann thing, but if that does eventuate, you know, I'm going to throw up the, the Michael Mann, you know, Neil McCauley <laughs> signal in the sky. And I know you're going to come running. I know you're going to come running. I will run down the stairs. I'll abandon my, <laughs> my stepdaughter in the hospital. <laughs>
Um, I don't know like where I would rank it. It's so hard to rank Michael Mann movies because it's all great, very great director, different. Great directors, it's tough. You know, you got Cullens, Paul Thomas Anderson, Tarantino, Michael Mann, Scorsese, Coppola. When there's so many good movies in each of their kind yeah. of, in, in their whole oeuvre, it's like, I mean, one day it's this, yeah. the next day it's that, whatever, whatever you feel. I really want to touch on what you said there, though, like, Geronimo is another great example. 1492 is a movie that I hadn't literally thought about until you said it, um, but that's so spot on. And even with Legends of the Fall, but this is kind of the under two-hour epic. I mean, this is something that when you said all of those, I'm like, every one of those is plus three hours. And Legends of the Fall I, I has an amazing movie in it, but it just kind of squanders in the way that it flounders and, and sort of limps all the way till its ending. Yeah, um, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of the running time until you mentioned that. Running time um, is I, running time is something I think before, about. <laughs> of course you do, but um, this one was not as bloated. It's like no. you know, sort of. Um, he made sure that he trimmed the fat off of it. I yes. think and made sure he just told the essential story. Um, and yeah, I think maybe that's part of the reason why it it works as well as it does. Um, so yeah. I'm I'm now making you focus on the most essential ending. I think is one of you know in Michael Mann movies endings, uh, you know sometimes cataclysmically great. Um, and I would say that Heat is one of those Titanic endings. Mm-hmm. Of course, Mohicans um, uh, definitely another, uh, and and just sort of some great sort of devastating endings that he leaves hanging like collaterals, Miami vices, people exiting, leaving things still people in passage. This one is definitely a Titanic one. Like as far as an ending, you know, the circa 12 minutes that lead up to the finale of, you know, the circa 12 minutes that is the finale of this movie and from Huron camp to Duncan sacrificing himself for Cora to Hawkeye, um, you know, rewarding Duncan's heroism with, you know, a mercy kill and then following Uncas chasing Alice up the hill with Margot's war party and Chingachgook. It's just the ferocity of that ending. What, when you're thinking about this ending, when you're thinking about this movie and as a person who I know, you know, probably watched it on cable as it was rerun or on home video, what, what's leaping out to you in this ascent and, and this like pure piece of cinema? The ending I always thought was kind of two things. It's sort of like a symphony. Uh, the theme itself um, brings back a lot of the other themes that play earlier for the different characters, kind of weaves them all together. I love that there's pretty much no dialogue except um, I think somebody screams. I think it was Daniel Day-Lewis screams Uncas, I think. And yes, then we he, have screams, some... uh, he screams Nakans. I've watched it a m- million times, and I, oh, I always thought it was Uncas, but it's only recently he screams Nakans, which is brother, which means brother in Mohican. And the only way that I know that is because the very beginning of the movie, and I'm glad you brought it up, the very beginning of the movie, um, uh, when Chingachakuk is and, and, and Uncas and Hawkeye are standing over the carcass of the, the buck that they shoot yes. in the woods, um, he sort of says like a little blessing and a prayer, thank you for your spirit, thank you for... You, you know what you what fortune you're going to bring us um and he, and his final parting word is in the cans like my brother like you're you're part of this ecosystem this environment and so later on you hear him when he screams the cans it's brother it's not uncas it's really it's a it's an interesting and it's a lovely touch very much this is another one that's 
cyclical. Yes. Even some of the shots go back to the beginning, like the pan around the horizon is yeah. exactly from the beginning. Um, when we first saw the title of the film, I believe. Yes. I love the, it kind of plays like a silent movie, which when the silent movies, you know, build to a climax, there was a, the orchestra was going like mad. And <laughs> this is kind of like a musical in that aspect. So it sort of works like a silent movie. There's very little dialogue there. And what is there is pared down essential. Like finally we get the last line of, um, when they're saying the prayer for Uncas and he says he's the last of the Mohicans. It's also interesting because there's three of them. And yes. at the beginning, there were three. Three is used throughout the entire film a number of different ways. You know, it's the third year of the war between England and France. There's three men. I think it was described the last of the vanishing people. Uh, when Daniel Day-Lewis tells the story about the sun, the moon, and the earth, that's three as well. Um, the love triangle between Cora and um, the two men. Uh, three goes throughout the entire film. You, you, so I thought you're it just like, you're like shaking me right now while, while we're talking. I'm just like, that's, and it's so true because there's three political systems too. You know, I think that's the other crazy hyper um, authentic portrayal that Michael Mann's going for. There's three political systems. So you've got like, you know, um, British monarchy and you've got this emerging sort of colonial democracy, if you like. You've also got the French, um, uh, you know, the, the French at that time, it's still monarchistic, so they're running there. And then you've got tribal, like Huron tribal political systems that are sort of stitched. So you've got monarchies and colonials and and then tribal laws and these three elements. And then obviously, you know, these two warring superpowers over this third colonial element, like they want this land to be theirs. It's, it's, it is this... It's this, it's this constant wrestle, this constant impossible yeah. wrestle between three, three things in every part of this movie. Very much. No, that's a really good point about the political systems. Yeah, sure. I can't take credit for that. It's in a book called The Philosophy of Michael Mann, um, a really terrific, a really terrific book, and um, and it's edited um, by, uh, sorry, it's uh, written by Stephen Sanders. Um, it was released uh, back in 2014, and it's got a sack of different contributions um, in there, and it's it talks about Mohicans and talks about the. Uh, it's 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 very much philosophical scholars sort of who examine the themes and the conflicts that drive the movies. Um, it's a really terrific one, you know, for any people who've listened to One Heat Minute or are now listening to The Last Five Minutes, The Mohicans, you know, it's, it's one of the really great man books that, are, that is available. Um, but it's, it's you know, I think that that's not, that's not something that I've discovered, but it's just, again, it's just something that now, it's one of those things that's so striking, much like your comment of the threes, that I'm like, it's one of those things that you just never look at the movie the same way again. It's just constantly hovering yeah. over your mind. Yeah, no, that sounds fascinating. I had a book like that, but it was on Hitchcock and it was written by philosophers. And it was, it's just always nice to get takes on films, um, even though I hate the phrase hot take, but, um, <laughs> you know, like intelligent takes on films that have a different skill set behind them than, than you, you know, not many of us majored in philosophy. And so it's wonderful to um, get their opinions on film and, and learn something else about life uh, in the process. So, yeah, that sounds like a really good book. Big recommend. So you said there's two things for you. You've got the symphonic thing playing out 
and the threes, what else is really driving with you in this ending? What are the, what's the scene? What's the sequence? What's the moment for you, Jen? That's just, that's your moment when you're watching this movie. Oh, it's absolutely heartbreaking. I think the whole, um, the beautiful scene with, um, I mean, it's devastating, but first the death of Uncas, and then when Alice, uh, takes the step off. It's interesting to see Magua kind of put his knife down. Yes. Um, or put it away, I should say, and sort of beckon to her with his hand, like, you know, come on. Um, and again, that is foreshadowed. Her actually falling off a ledge is foreshadowed earlier when they're underneath the waterfall. And Uncas is the one to pull her back from the ledge. And so you could kind of, I guess, see where that is headed. Um, but yeah, that was always a very devastating moment uh, when I was a kid. It just really hits you. Um, so oh, yeah. growing up, that's been the moment that stays with me the most. But no, I just, I love how it, it's a callback to the beginning of the film. And I guess I just love the way it's staged, the way the music works. It's It's perfection. It's one of his, I think, it's kind of up there with, you know, the bank robbery and and he just like a perfectly directed final coda for the film. Every every trick of the trade on display. Yes. Every Very much. every every the it's the kitchen sink of endings as far as cinematic tricks and I think it's what's funny is we've kind of like been grandfathered in to meme culture with movies. And so, you know, people who revisit classics and, you know, the heats and things like that, they're going to get gift into it, you know, gift and memed to death on film Twitter. And I, I always look at the, there's, there is the famous meme gif of, of Magua gesturing towards Alice. And I don't know whether it's intentional or what, but the way they frame it on Twitter makes you actually forget just how blood, bloody and disturbing that moment is it's 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 an incredibly loaded moment like his hands are literally dripping with the blood of the man that's held her onto this cliff face you know that's held her there and so she's looking at the knife i i don't think the knife going down is any let for me that and just to contrast your perspective i think the more that i'm talking about it i don't think the knife going down is anything but like a passive um a uh, uh, very superficial gesture because when he raises his hand and there's something that somewhat tender, maybe his eyes, when uh-huh. he, when he beckons with his hand, it is still glazed with the blood of Uncas. And I'm like, there's no escaping that her life's going to be tough. <laughs> you know, It's like, yeah. if she leaves with him, what choice does she really have? And like Jody may, um, terrific, oh. ter- terrific, a terrific actor often as Alice in this movie is found bumbling and, and completely out of her element. And I think, you know, I, I totally would agree with the take and I'd love to hear yours on her character broadly, but my, my take on Alice is, you know, just someone who has just sat in British high society, sipping tea mm-hmm. and going through the motions of, uh, what, you have to do in, in sort of in polite circles in being married off in, in being in that sort of high going to court and things like that. Her bewilderment for me is totally suited. And what makes Cora even more special, it's totally suited to what is happening. Cause I think even us as people in a modern context in 2019, like being thrust into war, like 
now, yeah. even modern war, which has got a little bit more societal trimmings, bathrooms, etc., rations, armor, like they're getting thrown into the wilderness in another country where there are multifactional warring native nations who are aligning themselves with superpowers and they're firing hot metal at each other with gunpowder <laughs> and things are exploding. Like I, her, uh, I, I think everything that drives her story is so suited to how lean this movie is, but also to that final payoff, she has to pretty much knock her whole performance out of the park in two close-ups, and I think she does. Very much, yes. That is her one real definitive decision uh, in the film. Yes. Uh, through most of it, she's just kind of following along with her sister, um, and that is the one decision, like, no, I'm not going to go with you. The other thing that's always been interesting about, I guess, Magua and mm-hmm. um, it, the ending, um, when, oh, I might say his name incorrectly, Chingachuku. I apologize. It's okay, Chingachuku. Yeah. Russell Means' his character. Chingachuku. Russell Means' his character. <laughs> when um is basically avenging his son and killing my there's a moment before he takes the final blow like this isn't any kind of joyous revenge it's it's depressing it's basically he is on the side now he's lost his children Mm. uh or his child i should say and um yeah, it's it's kind of a sad moment between the two men, sort of an understanding like as as horrible as Magua has been, there's no real joy from that. It's just something that had to be done um, for his sense of justice, his existential. And um, yeah, so I always thought that was an interesting way to approach it. I think some directors would have made it a victory lap. Like uh, I'm taking out the man who, you know, we would have had the, the orchestra would have swelled and it would have been a heroic arc. Um, you can see some directors probably like uh, one of the Scots who I love, but they would have <laughs> opera, opera behind it. Or if it was Tony know, Scott, that if it was Tony Scott, Margot's head would have been flying off the mountain. Let's face it. Let's face it. If yeah. it was Ridley. <laughs> An alien would have burst from his chest. Um, one of those things could have happened. No, I, I really agree. I think, but it's, I think it's like the ferocity of their encounter, like him getting to him, is 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 the real drive. And it's those, and yeah. it's also then the the reality of once you've like, you know, through the whole movie, we've seen exchanges where there's a couple of you know. Um, either with a saber or like a ferocious tomahawk fight, there's like two or three blows, boom, boom, and then there's a killing blow. Because it just no, there's no lies in a tomahawk or a knife. Like there's really like, yeah. there's not a lot of dilly-dallying. It's not like fencing. It's not a lightsaber fight. Um, Michael Mann is not concerned with any of that. What he's concerned with is once, once Chingachigook baits him and he starts to take away his tools, like he smashes his, uh, smashes his elbow, like completely demoralizes him by hitting his shoulder and his back. It's like once that happens and then they've got a face off, he's not taking any joy. I think that's, it's a really beautiful just moment to pause and go, I'm not taking any joy in this. Like we were happy to let you go. You know, it was your pursuit of these daughters and it was your pursuit of this bloodlust that led us to this moment. But I think it's, yeah, it's a really interesting moment to muse on. Because yeah, I don't, I, I don't want to prescribe what I feel in that moment necessarily to everyone who's viewing it. Because I think everyone could take some, some really interesting things into it and out of it. But I just love that he just, there's no satisfaction in this, and there's no satisfaction 
you know, Magua are killing Uncas, you know, now on this beautiful high-definition Blu-ray, you can see blood spattering on his face. You know, he's wheeling away in disgust. He, he takes no joy, not, not any mm-hmm. joy in doing it. Um, and there's no satisfaction afterwards. It's not like a conquest kill. Like, we've seen him, you know, cut the heart out of an enemy and relish yes. it. And relish yeah, the savagery. Very much. But in this moment, yeah, there's, it's not. Yeah. There's not. There's nothing like that. No. No, that's a really good point because the, the earlier kill, if you contrast those two, that's that's a really excellent point. There's no real happily ever afters in Michael Mann movies. <laughs> no, um, no, there's not. No. Like, I mean, yes, the two lovers live, but look at all the things they have gone through. The other thing that I've always found interesting is... His films are very uh, character driven, which yes. I like. It isn't some, you know, MacGuffin that they need to go get. It's what the character needs at that moment. And people always have to do the hard thing, uh, make a hard decision that they hope is going to pay off. They usually will sacrifice some big uh, part of happiness. I think I talked about that with Pete. Yes. How they'll forgo the happily ever after. Once again, you see it. The other thing I noticed, uh, and I think it's because I'd just been hyper-obsessive about heat, was the lovers looking at the sky again. That's that's such a Michael Mann thing now. Every time I, I think about that, it reminded me Where, of Robert De Niro. They're, they're looking out to the beautiful... In, in Mohegans, it's twinkling stars and, yeah. and, 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 and you know, oh, foundational, right. and foundational myths. And uh, in 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 Edie and Neil, it's L.A. It's the stars. Yep. The stars of L.A. shining from them. Stars and the lights. Yeah. He's just a big romantic. He's just misunderstood, Jen. <laughs> I think <laughs> we, uh, it's not just hyper hyper authentic violence and obsessive, you know, either criminals or police hunters. Yep. Um, he's just a big sweeping romantic. And you even see that, like, in little moments. Um, mm. For example, back in Heat, when Ashley Judd lets, uh, you know, Chris go, uh, Val Kilmer. Yes. I mean, that's kind of a romantic moment. And you see that here when he, I mean, that is not a beautiful goodbye, really. When Daniel Day-Lewis uh, tells Madeline Stowe, basically, look, you're going to get abducted. You might be brutalized. You might be basically, I mean, he doesn't use the words, but anything could happen to her and yes. just stay alive. The, re- the reality of the situation is that she will po- possibly be raped and she'll be yeah. brutalized. And, but the thing that they can hope for is that she'll survive will. and she'll endure. Yes. Yeah. Um, so even in the dark moments, there's an underpinning of romance or, or you could say in the romantic moments, there's darkness. Yes. Um, I guess he's never too far from reality, which is is nice in a way. It's not so superficial um, because they're in a really, you know, bad situation. They're in a war. Yes. And on several fronts uh, with the um, warring uh, Native American tribes and then, you know, the two countries. And then even just among the, the two men and her, there's a battle going on. So there's a battle going on from all sides. Oh. What a what a movie. Yes. What a movie. 
They don't make them like this. They don't make them like this. Epics. I think epics are so scared to be lean. Jen. They are. Yeah, I mean, just your average movies now are running like 140 minutes. So, and we don't get the epics. I was thinking about that. Like now we're in sort of a biopic phase where we're getting, you know, a million biographies. Uh, But this was really the heyday of, I guess, or, you know, kind of reminded me of the 50s a little bit. In the 90s, we had a bunch of these epics. We don't get them much anymore. And like you said, they just don't make them like this. <laughs> I think they need a watershed moment, right? It's like, you know, it happened with the superhero genre, happens with Western genre in in, um, in in different time periods, you know, where there's kind of like a seminal something. Happened in the 70s with road movies like Easy Rider. You know, happens with Raging Bull is fight movies, you know, boxing movies and, and Rocky um, obviously Rocky and then all the fight movies that ever came after Rocky as well as the entire series of Rocky, Star Wars with sci-fi movies, you know, there's kind of watershed moments um, and Dances with Wolves is kind of one of those ones that I think a lot of people sleep on its overall impact really all the way out to Pulp Fiction, right? Because it was like huge epic stories told on epic scale with epic run times, something today that you yeah. would see done over three seasons of a Netflix show, like not one like three, you know, it's, it's so, so monstrous. And then it tapers away significantly. And the next thing that is to scale after those early nineties movies, before it sort of pivots into contemporary sort of pulp fiction, you know, the, the Miramax era influence that permeates through there and the, and the sort of rich vein of indie films that goes all the way up. It scales all the way up to then like 2001 where Lord of the Rings, the first Fellowship of the Ring comes out. And it's like, okay, well, here's the scale. Here's the scale back that the early 90s had had, but we're taking it into a different genre and moving into fantasy. Very true. And the thing about um, The Last of the Mohicans is it also plays, it plays on two levels. An epic, I also say a throwback to silent movies, but it's also just at its heart a Western. Yes. And it was leading into like dances with wolves leading into the unforgiven tombstone yes um yeah these epic slash westerns were kind of big in this period i guess it's um different genres kind of become popular at different moments and maybe like we had musicals for a little bit and then they vanished again um so yeah, let's bring back the epic. <laughs> let's bring back the epic. The sub two hour yeah. epic. I want a sub two hour epic, guys. Someone help. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's 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 only people like a Chris Nolan that could walk in and say, "I'm going to do this epic. I'm going to spend all this money, but it's going to be under two hours." Because I think it's almost like Hollywood's like, "No, it has to be three hours. It has to be three <laughs> if you're going to spend that much money." But Michael Mann at that time and Warner Brothers at that time clearly knew Regency. Clearly, were like, "Okay, no, we can do this. You're the guy." <laughs> you're the guy for this remake you're the guy for this movie i know i the other thing i was thinking is daniel day lewis is very much drawn to this genre like he was in the bounty and gandhi yes. in the 80s and then after this with gangs of new york and lincoln and this is kind of the the daniel day lewis genre and he just it it's wonderful to see i mean he was made for these period oh, films. He's, sure. ma- he's made for a Michael Mann movie. I think, you know, you and I last talked about how made for a Michael Mann movie a De Niro and a Pacino are, the method, school, alive and well. But, like, the next generational actor from a whole different continent is Daniel Day-Lewis, the, the last remaining really true 
method guy, essentially. And, and this is them meeting up at a time where they're not renowned for being the method guys. Like, he literally took Daniel Day-Lewis at, like, the peak... Like, peak Oscar, you know, like he's like already won, an, oh, like, or very close to winning an Oscar and he's in this movie. He's like one of the biggest movie stars in the world and you're like, and and now he's going to get him to run around and, you know, learn how to shoot guns and do hand-to-hand combat and this is just what he does. It's like these these two are a match made in heaven. It's really funny. There's a great uh, making of documentary that um, uh, Madeline Stowe actually says, Michael's a general and Daniel's his number one soldier. And so it's like those oh, two guys. Those two guys are just like, you know, peas in a pot, a match made in heaven. <laughs> yeah, that one is on the uh, American Blu-ray. Yes. Um, and I watched the behind the scenes. It was so cool to see uh, Daniel Day-Lewis in survivalist training, running <laughs> yes. around and learning, nope, you have to move the gun when you, it matches your eyeline. And it was just really cool to see this, you know, beautiful son of a poet and stuff, learning how to do all these things. <laughs> And, you know, thinking of him in the 80s and, like, unbearable lightness of being or my beautiful laundrette. Yes. And then, what a change. Yes. And then, and then <laughs> he bared right. his chest and people were like, this guy could actually do things. He could, he could be an action star. Goes on to do The Boxer. One of the one of the real famous, um, and yeah. and and for and for people in the sport, you know, one of the mo- most authentic portrayals of being a boxer, what it's really like. So, you know, these guys these guys make these kind of movies, and they're together. It's that, I think that's the other sort of under, I don't know, undervalued, underappreciated, underthought about, or, or or examined. But you know, that's exactly you know part of the reasons why I think when you when you look beyond just what is arguably one of the greatest endings to one of the best epics that have ever been made. It's um, it's it's all underpinned and reinforced and scaffolded by terrific performances, all extremely authentic and aesthetically, you know, and historically accurate um, and just really rich, really rich takes on characters that, that, that all have just this beautifully direct shorthand language, dialogue, intense, um, but they can be hugely um, philosophical as well in those moments, staring off into the sky, being contrast against these huge mountain ranges in North Carolina. Insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know, um, did he ever intend to work again uh, with Daniel Day-Lewis? Did Michael Mann, was he ever cooking up another project? Well, Jen, I... Y- I can tell you this at the time we're recording. I haven't spoken to Michael yet. So I will take that. I might ask him, did he ever want to work with Michael? Did he ever want to work with Daniel Day Lewis again? Because I would say, you know, as far as method actors go, um, a method actor and a method director pairing like that, it would be pretty, pretty magnificent. Maybe take him back to another period, another period movie, another big sweeping epic, bring him back to the epics. I think if anyone can coax Daniel Day Lewis out of, just being an artist and 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 a, and a cobbler in France, or being semi-retired as sometimes he is, it's Michael Mann. Yes. Yeah, and I, he's doing it right now. I mean, he's retired again, but um, with Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, I mean, There Will Be Blood is one of I think the greatest acting performances ever. Yeah, yeah. and definitely did Phantom Red. So he's made for these period epics. And I would love to see another one with, yeah, let's get Michael Mant. Let's uh, start a crowdsource. Uh, everybody sign it. No, I'm just kidding. But no, it would be really cool to see them work together again. Well, when people listen to this, just know that um, if you want to harass Jen on Twitter, 
you can go to Twitter at Film Intuition um, or go to filmintuition.com and you can just attack her and say, where's this, where's this petition for Daniel Day-Lewis and Michael Mann to work together? And I'm sure it'll, in a couple of minutes you'll see it pop up in her Twitter feed for us all to go and sign digitally. Um, Jen, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thanks for bringing your take and uh, your intel- intellectual take, not a hot take. There is no hot takes in in, uh, in the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. Um, but thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.